What is up, my listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Keystone Chronicles podcast. With us this week, we are joined by Mr. Frank Nell, and I think that you guys are going to really enjoy this because Frank is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to trout fishing, especially spin fishing. So in this episode, you guys are going to be really awestruck when you hear about how many fish, trout, that this man has caught. And the logs and the statistics that he keeps are very, very impressive. You guys are going to hear some statistics, which is some of which that he says uh, the day of the week. Number of the trout caught, uh, number of hours fished, uh, average number of trout caught per hour, number of trout caught year to date, average number of trout caught you know, that day, uh, 15 inches and under, 16 inches and under, brooks, browns, rainbows, months time of the year i mean it's just really really impressive and i know that i don't keep records that are like this but if you do hats off to you and i think that you guys are going to really enjoy some of the stories he has and the techniques that we go over in this are going to be great for a lot of beginners especially if you're looking to spin fish and you don't really know what you're doing um spin fishing is a great way to get into the sport of trout fishing, especially in streams. And Frank is really going to help you guys out if you're learning or trying to learn anything of that nature. So don't be afraid to reach out for him and uh, ask for some help. You can get a hold of him on Facebook, and I strongly suggest that you check out his post. So with that being said, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Keystone Chronicles podcast. Today, I am joined with Frank Now, and Frank made the drive uh, not too far from here, but I'm really glad he wanted to come down and sit in person because you guys know I always talk about that I love this interaction so much more. But Frank, thanks you for coming up, and, and how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. I stumbled upon you uh, via social media and um, some of the stuff you've showed me and some of the stuff we have already talked about. Like I'm very impressed and and I'm very grateful you come up here. So, Frank, tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, when did you start fishing? Um, kind of where you're from? Just a profile, who you are. Okay. Um, I I was born in 1958, okay. so I'm kind of I'm kind of an old guy now. Um, and I grew up in northern uh, Bedford County, about a mile from the town of Sproul. Uh, between I I grew up on the road between Sproul and Greenfield, right in Bedford County. And the two streams there that I grew up near that we always walked to as kids with my three brothers and my dad was we, we walked along Beaver Dam Run and also Smoky Run, both of which back then were stocked trout streams. Mm -hmm. And it was a big deal every year. We would build little dams in the stream, and then when they stocked trout, the trout would gather in those pools, and then we'd feed them. And then when the first day of trout season came, we had a lot of fun. Oh, sure. And so did a lot of other people. Right. Uh, so that, that's where I grew up, and as a kid, I fished with bait. Uh, I did throw spinners a little tiny bit when I was a kid. I remember catching one on a Panther Martin probably when I was about 10 or 11 years old. A child hit it on the drop. Right. Um, but as far as what I call modern era would be 1979. June 3rd, 1979 okay. is when I started, I started fishing again in 1979. I hadn't fished. For, for about five years, because when I turned 16, I didn't want to buy a license. Uh, and so I, I didn't fish for several years. But uh, at the end of my junior year of college at IUP, uh, that April, 
I was home for spring break and I started fishing for trout then. And then in June, early June, I tried spinners. And the very first time I used a spinner, which was on Beaver Dam, Beaver Dam Creek, uh, we always called it Beaver Dam Run, but it's, uh, technically it's Beaver Dam Creek. And that first time that I tried spinners, I caught three trout that evening, which to me was just like great. <laughs> and uh, I was hooked immediately. Right, right. I, I loved it right then. And what I, kind of trout were they? Do you remember? Uh, I know the first trout was a rainbow, little rainbow trout. Yeah. Um, I kept the daily journal back then, uh-huh. and I actually went and read some of it before I came here today. So uh, I'm a little bit up on it again. Good, um, good. I know I was using a um, yellow rooster tail uh-huh. with yellow yellow hair on the back, and the, the body was like yellow and black, and it was just a real small rooster tail. I don't recommend rooster tails nowadays because they're too light, uh-huh. and you can't cast them far enough. But um, that, it was with a rooster tail. But as far as the other two trout, I don't remember what they were offhand. So, it, and of course, it doesn't matter anyway. And, and then that particular summer, before going back to college, I fished a bunch of times, mostly by myself. At that time, as far as people influencing me and getting me started with spin fishing, um, my brother Mark is the one, as I, what my memory tells me, he's the one who heard about how good spin fishing was from other people and he had been fishing spinners for a few years and according to my journal which i just read today he was having some days of back then of 10 20 trout in a few hours right which was big numbers for us back then and i also know that that most of my fishing that first summer was either by myself or with my brother paul and paul was a little over a year older than me and he was mostly a fly fisherman and we would fish both he'd fish flies i'd fish spinners and sometimes he'd fish spinners too and i know from reading my journal today that he had had a day where he had caught 36 at some point prior to when that particular summer i don't remember when it was it was probably the year before but i don't remember that i don't, I don't have a record of that but those kind of numbers intrigued me and it, it motivated me to keep fishing and for that first summer my best day fishing spinners was eight trout and I caught a total of 42 trout my first year or first summer of fishing spinners, which was, I thought, really, really exciting right, and right. Really, really good. And my interest in it gradually grew from there. And obviously, I graduated from college. I got a car. I bought better equipment. And, and then I started branching out a little bit, going to some new streams. Most of the streams I fished back then I don't even fish anymore mm-hmm. because they're not the kind of places you're going to go and catch a hundred. They they just aren't. I see. And um, so I still go to some of them for for reminiscing purposes. Right. But generally, no. I I go to different streams now, where I'm more apt to catch a lot more trout and and have more fun. That's not to say you can't have just as much fun catching one or two in a couple hours as you do as I might now catching twenty in a couple hours. Right. Because I can honestly say that when I was starting in my first summer, I had just as much fun when I caught one or two as I do now when I catch 100 in a day. And that's I'm not blowing smoke when I say that. That's honest. I actually used to get lightheaded from holding my breath so much from when the trout were chasing my spinner in that first <laughs> summer. That's, that's a true story. I used to get lightheaded, yeah. and I don't get lightheaded anymore. But that, that should tell you a little bit about the excitement right, that right. I was feeling Definitely. at that time. 
And there was just something special to me about having a child charge up behind and, and grab my spinner. There's just something about that that hooked me right away. Yeah. So, so that's kind of that's kind of the history. Obviously, in in more recent years, I've I've now this is 2023. This is my 45th year to fish spinners, and some of the people listening to your podcast probably never heard of me, which is would be expected. Um, and that's okay. I do fishing, trout fishing seminars on spinner fishing, and I've been doing that for probably close to 40 years. And one other thing I'm going to mention here for the people who don't know me, because we're going to be talking about some tactics here a little later, uh-huh. and I think it's important that they know my credentials, because without me saying what I'm going to say here next, they're not going to know me from anybody else, and therefore they're not going to know whether to pay any attention to what I have to say about my tactics. Yeah. So I consider creden- I consider how many trout I've caught to be my credentials, and because someone listening to this will be able to decide. Okay, well this guy has caught more than a few. I think what he says might be a little of, of a little more value than this other guy I know who's caught. 300 in the last five years. Yes, yeah, definitely. So the total that I've caught through the end of last year is a little over 337,000 trout. <laughs> and all those were recorded in the tablet as I fished. And I always, uh, as soon as I release a trout, I get my tablet out and I write down the size, species, and the time caught before I make my next cast. That way there's absolutely no chance of double counting any fish. Yeah. So I, I consider that to be rock solid. I also have all my tablets for all those trout. I could go back and, and um, tell you what minute I caught every one of those trout. But it would take a while to organize all that stuff. But I do have it. So, so I just thought I'd mention that. Um, once again, I'm not trying to brag. No, that's that's no, no. not the point of it. I understand. And I'm very glad you did. Um, I'm actually sitting here looking at uh, some of Frank's numbers. And I'm telling you guys, when he brought this to me, I just was like... <laughs> It's it's very impressive, and I'm very glad that he was able to keep the calculations and keep track the way he has. He has. We'll get into some more of it, but the the statistics and the numbers that are here are very impressive, Frank. Um, Thank you. And yes, I, anybody that's listening, if you guys are into learning, and most of the listeners of the show are, we're gonna get on the road of of the tackle, the tips, the techniques. Um, we're, we're going to get down the road of this. So let's actually go that route, if you're okay with that, um, Frank. Um, yes. Let's segue into the tackle that you use. So you are a spin fisherman, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Let's start with the rod choice. Okay. I, I make my own rods, and I use a one-piece, five-foot, ultralight, graphite spinning rod. It has, it has a very fast action, which means it's very stiff. And the purpose of that is so that you can set the hook. Because when the child grabs your spinner, you have to immediately set the hook. And setting the hook is what I consider spin fishing's greatest challenge. That is the most difficult. That's the, the most difficult thing about spinner fishing if you weigh it all out and look at it in total. I've had people disagree with me on that, and that's fine. But I, I consider that the, the last frontier is hooking trout. Because you could be the best caster in the world, but you're not going to catch many trout unless you can set the hook. Right, right. So uh, and I, I use a rod that has a 8-inch cork handle and with two movable vinyl rings so that I can seat the, the reel near the butt of the rod. 
I, I seed it about two inches from the butt of the rod. And I do that because I like to hold my rod with the butt of the rod inside the palm of my hand. I don't like those rods that have a fixed reel seat where you have a, a foot of a cork handle between your palm and your elbow. All that that does is get in, in your road when you're casting and you have to adjust your arm so that it's not hitting your arm all the time. I hold the butt of the rod inside the palm of my hand and it makes casting a lot easier in my opinion and I think a lot more accurate. Um, as far as the, the blank, I use I buy my parts at a place called Mudhole. That's where I get everything except the cork handles and the vinyl rings. I get those at um, Jan's Netcraft is where I get the, the cork handles. But uh, at Mudhole.com is where I buy all the rod parts. And they have a, a, a spinning rod there. I, I forget what the, what the name of it is anymore, but... But um, I, I cut the blank down. I cut a few inches off. I think it's a five and a half foot blank, and I cut it down so that in total my rod is it's like five feet one and a half inches. I think is what it is. Um, but it could be five feet. It wouldn't make any difference. Um, but that's that's what I do. I also put inch marker thread wraps on on my rod, and the purpose of that is so that I can quickly. Measure my trout. That is slick. <laughs> you know, I can't believe I've never seen that before. Yeah, we, uh, the listeners can't see this, but right. the the cork handle is exactly eight inches, and then from the from here to the to up near the biggest guide is another sixteen inches. So I can measure trout up to twenty four inches on the rod very easily. And obviously, if there's anything after that, mm -hmm. I, I'll just get like a golden rod or something and measure the trout, then go home and measure it later. But I can measure my trout very, very easily. 16 inches are from here to here. Nice. Which is one of the things, one of the stats that I keep track of is how many trout I catch that are 16 inches or longer. Right. So I have a place marked on here very easily where I can do that. I use four-pound test clear or, or uh, original strand monofilament. Mm -hmm. And I... Go through a lot of line yeah. in the course of a year. I'm sure you do. I change my line every two, three outings. Uh, it just—it's a constant thing. Back, I—I currently buy smaller spools because I don't think you can buy the big spools. But I used to buy those big spools that had 2,400 yards, and I used to go through one of those every year. Dang. And so, what, what's—I uh, don't want to interrupt you, but what's what's the reasoning of? I mean, every two to three outings, you're going to re-spool the the reel. The reason I do that is because, for one thing, while I'm fishing, about every 15 minutes, I cut my spinner off and about two, three, four inches of line, and I retie my spinner. And I do that because the line near the spinner gets nicked very quickly when you fish spinners. And if you don't do that, you're very quickly just going to break off on a trout. Even a, a five-inch trout can break you off if you don't uh, retie. I retie my spinner religiously. And if I'm fishing a stream like in the fall where I'm more apt to catch bigger trout, I might be retying every 10 minutes. Wow. And I actually keep track of that with my watch. I keep looking down and, and making sure of that. That's, that's, I think, very, very important wow. to do that. Um, and I do not use any swivels or split shot. Mm -hmm. I tie my line directly to my spinner. Yeah. Because I, I used swivels in the past. I didn't see where it made any difference whatsoever with uh, line twists. Yeah. I, and all that it is is just a pain. And if you use a barrel swivel, like a foot from the 
spinner, if you cast up over a little limb, all that it does is just wrap you up. Yeah. But if you don't have any, if you don't have any split shot or a little swivel, and you go up over a little branch, it just goes up over the little branch. It doesn't go up over them and then wrap you up until it's tight. It just goes up over and you just real flip it back up over the way it went in. So uh, I've never seen any advantage of using a swivel. I haven't used swivels of any type since probably the first year or two that I fished. Huh. And I, I never saw a big advantage to them. Um, I also make my own spinners uh, completely, and I've been doing that I think since 1981 or maybe 82. And I only use my own spinners. I do not use any commercial spinners uh, because I'm, I consider myself a purist. <laughs> I use only my own stuff, just just for the fun of it, more than anything else. And my spinners, most of them weigh right around one eighth ounce, and that means they're heavy, and I can cast them well. If I'm fishing a large stream, because of the rod and the reel, I didn't mention the reel yet. I'll get to that. Maybe I should get to that first. Hopefully, I'll remember what I was going to say. I use a Shimano Stratic reel. And I think it's the 1,000 size, which is small. They're no longer made, uh-huh. but that's what I've been using for years now, and they're a very, very good reel. The only bad thing about them is that the line does get caught behind the spool occasionally, which is a real pain, but that does happen. That's the only thing bad about them. I, I also, for my spinning rods, I also use all Shimano. Mm-hmm. Yep, and... um. That's just something that was passed down. My grandparents, you know, my pap and my dad, and just was passed down. And that's that's just the flavor that I've always chose, you know. And I've never had any problems. Yeah. Um, now I do use, like you were saying, the little higher end ones. That's mm-hmm. what I prefer, you know. But I would tell my listeners, if you were to ask me about a, a setup, I would go the same route. I would start with a, a Shimano reel. Don't get me wrong. Pen makes a good reel. Um, there's some other companies, but a lot of those companies are all in from the same mother company. Mm-hmm. So uh, Abu, I know a lot of people run that president, presidential or president uh, Abu series, uh, and and they're nice. My friends have them, but I would spend the extra couple bucks personally if you're a little more serious about it, like you want something kind of decent. You know, a hundred dollar range, eighty, seventy to a hundred. You know, modern times reels have really went up, but. I would say if you're in the seventy to one hundred dollar range of a reel, you're going to get a pretty decent reel. Yeah, and these Stratics back when I bought them, I, I still have a few of them because I bought a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. But they they were right around two hundred and twenty five dollars. Yeah. Yep. Now that may sound like a lot, but one thing for people to remember with me, this is my number one hobby. Right. right. This is what I do mm-hmm. for year round, but mostly you know I slack off big time in the winter. But this is what I like to do. Right. So I, I don't mind spending a little extra money. And also, if you are, spend a little extra money, generally you get better quality. Yeah. And I, I, I'll just touch on, on it. The, most of the Shimano Stratics that I have used over the last several years, they, they usually last around 225 to 250 hours yeah. worth of rapid-fire spin fishing, which is not a lot. That's like a dollar an hour for the cost of them. And what usually breaks is the bale tripping me- mechanism. And when that breaks, you can't use them because the, whole, the bale becomes limp and you can't, you can't even use it by flipping it with your hand. It's, you're done. Which is why when I'm fishing, I always carry a spare reel in my vest. I've always carried an extra reel. Uh, seems like overkill, but it's well, saved me quite a few times. Well, you're probably putting a lot of miles on too. So you're not just gonna walk up to the road back to the truck and you know what I mean? You're gonna 
have to walk a long way to go back to the truck. Yeah, it, it would probably mean quitting and walking a couple miles back and putting a new reel on and then going somewhere else, Right. which I don't like to do. So, But I will tell you that the current Shimano Stratic that I've been using, because I keep track of all the hours that I fish, the current Shimano Stratic reel that I've been using, I've put some, I, I haven't looked before I came here, so I don't know the exact number, but it's, it was something like 2,200 hours on one reel, mm -hmm. which is the equivalent of about 10 wow. of all the ones in the past. So I think I got my value out of that reel, and it still works fine. I'm still using it to this day. Mm -hmm. So one thing I wanted to touch on so I don't forget it because I mentioned this a little earlier, as far as the weight of my spinner and also using the rod that I use, as far as casting distance, I can cast about 80 feet with the flip of a wrist and just a little bit of arm action. And I know it's 80 feet because I know how many inches my reel takes up for every one crank of the reel. And you, all you do to figure out how far you cast is it's about 30 inches per crank of the reel handle. And if you want to know how far you cast, you just make a long cast. And then when you retrieve, you just hold the reel in close to your body so that every time you make one revolution of turning the reel handle, it hits your body. And then you just count how many times you've hit your body, and then you just calculate it out. So I know that 80 feet is about, that's about my maximum with a little bit of arm action. Uh, but if I just use mainly just my wrist and maybe a tiny bit of elbow action, I can go 40, 50, 60 feet easily with no problem with just a little, hardly any motion at all. Mm -hmm. And that's because the spinner is, is pretty heavy, and also the rod is made specifically for fishing spinners. Now, those uh, the size that you normally use, like you have here, that your uh, minimum size is an eighth ounce, uh, typically, or the ones you're using about three sixteenths of an ounce or so. Or the um, the ones that I use are pretty much all right around one eighth ounce. Now, I will tell you, I do not have a scales. Okay, mm -hmm. I had a friend of mine weigh them some of my spinners one time on his uh, scale that he uses for reloading ammunition. And he, he told me how many grains it weighed. Right. And, I, and I converted that, and it came out right around one-eighth ounce. I, see. I don't doubt it's off a little tiny bit, because mm -hmm. some of my spinners uh, might ha be slightly different than the other one. Yeah. But they're, they're, they're heavy. Right. I would always err on the side of them being a little heavier rather than lighter if someone is, is making their own spinners. You know, err on the side of heaviness because light spinners are, in my opinion, downright worthless. Right. Well, they don't sink far enough. And and, and they're too hard to cast. Right. Yeah. yeah that's the problem. And um, I can cast that, as far as I said, with real real ease, and it's, it's critical. I also think that when you use a heavier spinner that you can be more accurate than you can with a light spinner because you're not putting as much effort into it, and it just sails right where, you, right where you're looking at when you make all the casting motion. It just goes bang, right to the spot. Let's talk about um, the other tools that you bring with you. So do you, when you, you catch a fish, you bring it to shore, how are you gonna release the, the, the trout? Okay, first of all, I do not use a net because uh, I think it's a waste of time. I'm usually standing in the water whenever I bring a trout into me. So if I fumble around with it a little bit, it just drops down into the water. It's not like I'm dropping it on rocks. 
So I, I do carry a net with me, but only for photographic purposes because I think nets look nice in photographs. Yeah, they do. So they th do. That's, that's the only reason I carry a net. If I didn't take pictures, I wouldn't even carry a net. It's a waste of time. Um, so I, when I reel in the trout, I, well, it's, it, let's say it's in the water in front of me. I reach down. I always wet my left hand. I'm, I'm left-handed, but I cast right-handed. Okay. So I reach down with my left hand, and I grab the trout, and I usually just flip it upside down in my hand as I'm picking it up. Because if you hold it upside down, it tends to immobilize the trout, and that makes unhooking it a lot faster. It, this, that works particularly well with wild brown trout. It doesn't work real well with rainbow trout, and it, it works medium well with, with stock brook trout. It works pretty well with native brook trout. But I, ho I almost always hold them upside down if necessary. And then I, I carry a needle nose pliers, a, a small needle nose pliers. And if I need it, I use that to take the hook out. Um, I would say I, I've never checked how many times I use the pliers versus no pliers and just use my fingers. I, I, if I take it out with my fingers, I'd be using my right hand to take the hook out. Mm -hmm. And my, my rod would probably be at that point underneath my, in my armpit. And which, by the way, if you have a net, it causes problems because there's too many things to hold. You know, how do you hold your rod, the net, and the pliers? Right. It, it becomes a, a problem. So, um, and then uh, I unhook it and, and I release it. I, I had my brother Mark time me on a large stream one time for how long it takes me from the time I hook a trout until the time I drop it back into the water where it's going to swim away. Mm -hmm. And the total time for that is about, on average, 25 seconds. And I'll add another five seconds to that for that's how long it takes me to get my tablet out and record the trout. So for every trout I catch, roughly from the time I hook it until the time I'm ready to make my next cast, it is about 30 seconds. Mm. One other thing I'd like to mention, because I do use treble hooks. I do not use single hooks on spinners. I am 100% against single hooks on spinners because single hooks are basically like a J-hook is what I'm talking about, a single J-hook. Because, by the way, a treble hook is a single hook. It just happens to have three points. Right. But I'm talking about single J-hooks. Right. They are basically two-dimensional, and they're very easy for a trout to swallow. And you will, without any question, kill more trout with a single, single J-hook than you will with a treble hook. And I, I often quote a fisheries biologist from the Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission who wrote about this topic on the website paflyfish.com. Mm -hmm. And he said, point blank, and this was to some fly fishermen, which you have to, you have to admire somebody who's willing to, to go against it, what all their thinking is because they all hate treble hooks. Um, and he said, no, single hooks are bad. Treble hooks are better. So... Um, uh, and also another thing I want to mention with treble hooks, you know, a couple things I want to mention with treble hooks because this is from a lot of experience. How many of the trout that I catch with a treble hook are hooked by all three points of the treble hook? A few years ago, I kept track of that for several years in a row. My sample size was over 30,000 trout. I, I ca in my tablet, for every single trout I caught for years, yeah. I would put a one, two, or three for how many points of my treble hook 
we're, we're in trout flesh. And I w- to be honest, I never went and added it all up because I, you know, it would take, it would probably take all winter to add it up. Right. And I'm just not going to do that. But you get a feel for it when you've done it as much as I do. Mm-hmm. I've, I've had days where I didn't hook one trout out of 100 with all three points. Okay. But, but generally speaking, I would say that about 60 to 65% of the trout that I catch with, with treble hooks are hooked with one point of the treble hook. Another 20, 25% are hooked, something like that, are hooked with two points. And somewhere in the neighborhood of 5% are hooked with three points. I hope that adds up to 100 roughly. But it's somewhere in that general area. I'm not exact because I don't have the exact numbers anyway, so it does, doesn't matter. Um, but the point is, is that very few of them are hooked with all three points. And also, the thing I'll say, too, is is that if all three points are in their mouth, I don't see any problem with that at all. Those are some of the easiest ones that I can take out because I hold the trout upside down, put the pliers in their mouth, it comes right out. There's a technique to it, and I know which which of the three points to back out first, and the mouth comes open, you take the other one out, you're done. Simple as that. One of the things that I would like to say also, for the people who are would disagree with what I've just said, uh, particularly about treble hooks and how they uh, damage trout mouths or how, they, how trout swallow them, and they wouldn't agree with what I just said, I'm sure. One thing I want them to think about is is their experience with stocked rainbow trout only, or almost only. Because I can tell you that different species of trout are hooked differently. There is no question in my mind that rainbow trout are the worst. There is no doubt that hooking mortality is higher with stocked rainbow trout than it is with native brook trout, or wild brown trout. Huh. Wild brown trout, without any question, or have the the lowest mortality of the of the three that I've just named, which I have the most experience with. My most experience is with, is with stocked rainbow trout, native brook trout, and wild brown trout. I don't catch a lot of stocked brown trout in the course of a year. Uh, I've only fished for wild rainbow trout a few times, and I only catch a few stocked brook trout as well. So I don't really have any opinion on the hooking mortality of those three. But for the ones that I fish, there is no doubt in my mind that stock rainbow trout have a higher hooking mortality than wild brown trout. They're completely at different ends of the spectrum. So anybody who reads a hooking mortality study, the first question I would ask is, well, what kind of trout were they catching? Because it makes a big difference. And um, I just thought I'd point that out. I also want to point out that uh, I've read lots of fly fishing mortality studies and they're usually a very, very low hooking mortality and I don't doubt that. It's usually 2-3% or something like that. I would say with my spinners that I'm somewhere in the neighborhood of 2-3 uh, to three at the most percent mortality. But the one thing with fly fishing hooking mortality studies is that I, I've never read one where they actually told you what kind of fly fishing they were doing. They just say fly fishing. Well, don't different types of fly fishing have a different hooking mortality? I would think that it would. I don't claim to have a lot of experience. I have almost no experience with that. I have observed a good bit. Um, during those years, as I mentioned earlier, 
when I was 16 to when I was 21, that time where I didn't really fish, I used to tag along with my brother Mar or brother Paul when he was fly fishing. So I have a lot of experience. He caught thousands of trout on flies. Uh -huh. So I had a lot of experience seeing what the hooking mortality was with, with flies. And I've also talked to some people, and I've had two fly fishermen that are well-known, and I'm not going to mention who they are, but on a one-on-one -on -one basis, they probably wouldn't say this in front of a crowd, but on a one-on-one -on -one basis, they both told me that without any doubt that dry fly fishing has the highest hooking mortality of any type of fly fishing. And they, one, actually both of them even said that they felt their mortality with dry fly fishing was higher than what my mortality is fishing treble hooked spinners. So um, I don't have any study to support that. I'm going by what people have said. But the point is, is that if you start talking about hooking mortality, there's more to it than just reading a study and, and without delving into it. Right, right. I understand. So that. I don't. I guess I belabored that point a little bit. No, no, but, no. I I understand fully what you're what you're getting at. Um, but I mean, no matter the way you look at it, when we fish, it it, it happens. It's it does happen. We try to prevent it from happening, but it does happen. So you can't be one of them people that are like, well, I don't kill no trout. Well, whether you know it or not. You may or may not have, okay? So that just comes with it. Yes. All right, and that's not something we're trying to do. We don't promote that at all. But the fact of the matter is it doesn't matter what kind of fishing you're doing. It, it can happen, right? And I know what you're saying about swallowing the hook, um, other things. But as far as hooking them with a treble hook, yeah, I would I would side with you on the fact that it's very easy to get out. You know, there's very rare occasion where it actually gets inside the mouth to a degree where you're back into the gills and whatnot, you know, or uh, in, into its its throat, if you will. Yeah, um, in the, into the gill rakers. Right, exactly. And, and under them. Right. Yeah. So usually, yeah, usually you're, you know, lip hook, top lip, side lip, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I want to go down the road of the uh, thermometer. Do you carry a thermometer with you? Yes, I always carry a thermometer. I've, I learned that from my brother Paul. I learned a lot from him um, back when he was fly fishing in particular. I carry a thermometer because water temperatures are, are critical for being choosing streams. And, you know, I've been doing it for stream temperatures now for 40, over 40 years. And when you do it enough and you pay attention to the weather, which I do all year long, I can pretty well guess what a stream is going to be prior to even going. You know, I know, for example, I know a stream I can go to in the middle of February on a day when it's 25 degrees in the morning, and the water temperature is going to be somewhere around 46 degrees. And the reason for that is because it's, that stream is basically just a huge limestone spring. And limestone springs come out of the ground in this area of Pennsylvania yep. at about, about 48 to 52 degrees year-round, regardless of the air temperature. So I know... You know, I use that to my advantage a lot. When I fish in the winter, I almost always go to limestone streams. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason. Because I'm going to, if I have a choice, what, let's say I wanted to go fishing in a normal February, where, and I normally only fish in the winter a few times anymore, 
But if a normal February, I, if I were going to choose a day to go fishing, I would want the air temperature overnight, which is the most important temperature. I don't want it dropping below freezing, to be honest. Below freezing, I'm probably not going to even bother going because I'm retired. Why would I bother going? Right. I would rather I, I would prefer, prefer a day that the air temperature goes down to 32 degrees at night and then it only goes up to 40 the next day as opposed to a day where it goes down to 20 at night and goes up to 60 the next day. Because I don't want the water temperature to plummet overnight. So if I'm choosing a stream to go fishing in the wintertime, let's say it's, it's going to be a night where it goes down to 32. And I know it's going to, that's air temperature, down to 32. Uh-huh. And I know it's going to go up to 40, 45 during the day. If I go to a little mountain stream somewhere in February, let's say there's snow on the ground. The, air, the water temperature there is probably going to be about 35 degrees. But the limestone stream that I go to most likely is going to be 42 degrees. What are the odds of there being more trout active at 42 degrees than at 35 degrees? Probably a decent bit higher. A huge, huge difference. Yeah. You know, from my experience, a huge, huge difference. So I'm going to go to the limestone stream for that reason. Uh, another thing you can do with um, with a thermometer is that, um, you know, maybe, uh, well, you learn some things. First of all, if the water temperature is pushing 70, you don't fish. Right. You know, my cutoff is 70. To be honest, I rarely ever even encounter a stream that's 68 or higher because I'm already, I know enough about water temperatures that I'm avoiding those places that are going to get that warm anyway. Mm-hmm. But I would say don't fish if it's 70 or higher. And if it's 68 or higher, you know, maybe you want to start thinking about leaving and going somewhere else, something like that. Um, so water temperatures are critical. And I, I forget exactly here offhand what the, the ranges are for different trout. Brook trout have a an active range that's a little bit lower mm-hmm. than, than brown trout right? and rainbow trout. Um, but... Uh, but, but, you know, in, by the way, if it was middle of June and it's a normal, there's good water, you hardly have to worry about water temperatures. Pretty much everywhere you go is going to be good. Right. You know, June is the, the easiest month as far as water temperatures in most cases because the flows are usually good. The nights are usually reasonably warm. You don't have the swings in water temperature. And in June, uh, you could just go pretty much anywhere you want to go and it's going to be good is, from my experience. Which is why, if you look back in my stats, um, that uh, I, I just noticed this whenever I was preparing my annual report, which I post online. For any viewers, if anyone wants to read my yearly trout fishing summary, they can either do it on Facebook, on my Facebook page, which is called Frank Nail, or you can go to the website huntingpa.com and go to the trout slash salmon fishing forum, and I post my annual trout fishing summary in there. Um, but when I was preparing that summary this year, I noticed that I had two days this year, I believe it was in June, where I didn't catch 100 trout. That was the first time I've had a day under 100 trout in like five years. Be- that's because June offers stable conditions. You don't have those mornings typically where it's freezing. In fact, that would almost never happen. Uh, because obviously we don't have frost usually in June around here. Right. So, but you might have a day that's 38, you know, 
but that even I might skip that day. But um, you, you, June is definitely more stable overnight temperatures, usually going down into the 40s probably, and in the days going up into the 70s, something like that, maybe 80. But it, it's just basically ideal temperatures. So, so I've learned a lot with water temperatures over the years. The key is always take a water temperature, whether you think it's valuable or not. Write it down in your tablet. If you do that enough, over time, you'll learn pretty much what the water temperature is going to be before you even take it. And then that can help with one of the most important things that you do, which is stream selection. Where am I going to go fishing today? And if you know ahead of time what the water temperature is going to be, or roughly what it's going to be, it's going to help you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean... <laughs> if you know the right stream to go to, you're gonna you're gonna hit the nail on the head every time. Exactly. Um, I'd like to segue in to some of the tips and techniques that you have for everybody. Okay. Um, let's start up with uh, the way that you you fish. So you show up to the stream, you find a spot that you'd like to fish, right? Take me down the road of what that looks like. Okay. I you you know I always know where I'm going usually the night before is when I decide. Mm -hmm. Now, if there are thunderstorms or something in the forecast, I might check on some things before I leave in the morning. I, I check the the USGS gauges mm -hmm. where they have stream gauges on various streams. And if a thunderstorm hits an area, it might be the stream I'm going to or it might be one close by. And then I can gauge, hmm, maybe I don't want to go there because the stream just went up by 100 cubic feet a second. I'm not going there. You know, it's going to be muddy. But when I get to a stream, I always fish upstream, always. Now, that doesn't mean that when I walk over the stream, if there's a nice hole below me, that I might flip a cast downstream a time or two. You know, so, but 99.99% of my fishing, I get in the stream and I walk upstream. I stay in the, in the water or on the rocks along the stream, and I switch sides to the shallow side of the stream as I walk upstream. I'm constantly changing sides, and it just it just happens to fit where uh, it goes hand in hand with casting to the best spots. With whenever you're on the the lower lower water or or side of the stream that's just rock, that means you're on the correct side of the stream because it gives you the best angles for casting. So I'm, I I never get up on the bank unless the water is too deep. Right. And I, I, this is maybe jumping ahead, and this is one of the technical things, but there's a thing called line drag, and a, a lot of fly fishermen will tell you that the drift, when they're fishing dry flies, I think in particular, drift is one of the most important things. And you, you don't want to have a lot of drag or slack probably in the line because then it makes setting the hook a little more difficult. With spin fishing, on every single cast I make, I pay attention to what I call line drag. And there's horizontal line drag, and there's vertical line drag. Vertical line drag is the easiest one to explain. If I'd be on a bridge and making a cast down below me to the stream that's 15 feet below me, you can visualize how my line from the tip of my rod makes a big bow going down to the water below me. Well, when I see a trout hit my spinner 30 feet away, when I set the hook, I've got to straighten up all that line that's in the bow from my rod tip clear down to the trout. That takes a lot of time, and in most cases, the trout's going to spit the spinner out. You're not going to catch it. Right. That's vertical line drag, and you want to minimize that. That's why when I'm fishing, I keep my rod tip 
just a few inches from the surface of the water. I don't hold my rod over the top of my head, for example. I hold my rod tip within a few inches of the water surface. That is minimizing vertical line drag. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, there's also horizontal line drag, and that's a little harder to explain. I mean, so, but horizontal line drag would be like if you were fishing at a curve and your line is going to have a bow in sort of across the top of the water. I don't know how to explain that exactly without, I usually use a photograph to explain this. So that's, that's hard to explain. But the current pushing against the line may, puts a bow in the line that's on top of the water or across the water. And you want to minimize that on every single cast because when you set the hook, you have to straighten all that up before there's any hook generating force generated at the hook. And as I said earlier, setting the hook is spin fishing's greatest challenge. So you want to do everything you can do to minimize the time from when the trout hits the spinner to when you set the hook. And I set the hook hard. It's not just a little little tug. It's a hard hook set. So... So anyway, so going back a little bit here, I kind of went on a tangent, but I do think it was important to mention that. So I'm fishing upstream. I fish fast. And I'm, I'm also, by the way, wearing full camouflage. And I like to blend in. I wear a camouflage hat. I wear polarized sunglasses. Uh, one critical thing with, when you're fishing spinners is you never, ever make even one cast if you're not wearing protection over your eyes. When I start out in the morning, I wear a pair of clear goggles. And then, like a half hour later, I put on my amber-shaded polarized sunglasses. And that's what I wear then for the rest of the day. But I will not make one cast without having protection over my eyes. And I will not fish with someone unless they, too, are, are where they have to be wearing protection over their eyes. That's also one of the reasons why on the first day of trout season, I usually avoid the first couple of hours because I do not want to fish among a bunch of people because my spinner may back, go back and hit somebody, and I don't want to take that chance. I will tell you that I've already been playing a trout, and as I brought the trout up to my feet, the spinner popped free, flew back, and slammed right into the lens of my glasses. I have a pair of glasses. I should have brought them along with the lens completely shattered, and I had glass chips on my cheek up by my eye from when oh. this, I hate to think what would have happened right. if I hadn't been wearing protection over my eyes so that is a critical thing it's in bold on this list right here that you're looking at uh, you have to wear protection over your eyes period no exceptions okay and so anyway here I am fishing upstream I'm wearing full camouflage I wear hip boots and they are uh, a dark olive color mm-hmm you will never see me wearing anything that's light-colored. Uh, I ran into a guy last summer at my apartment, and he wanted to fish with me, and we ended up going. I was a little reluctant because it was August, and all the streams were low. There was really no good place to right, go. Right. But I told him where I was going the next day, and he just happened to show up. So we ended up fishing a little bit together. But he, I had told him ahead of time, you know, I wear camouflage, and he assured me he too he didn't wear camouflage, but he wore drab clothing, which is basically the equivalent. Right. I have no problem with someone wearing drab clothing. Same difference. So I, we, we met along the stream just by chance, and he had neoprene, or not neoprene, he had um, the uh, waders up to his chest, uh, the breathable waders. Mm-hmm. They were light tan. He had a shirt on that was light tan, 
and he had a hat on that was light tan. And I'm like, whoa, I'd see you 200 yards away. You know, uh, that, that's, you know, I said, we can still face together. But I said, that's a no-no. Don't ever, you know, no way. When you're facing spinners, there's no way you want to wear that. It's just a, a, a bad thing. That's why when I see people fishing and they have a white shirt on or something, it, it makes absolutely no sense to me, particularly if they're crouched down and trying to hide from the trout and they have a white shirt on or a real light-colored shirt. I just shake my head and they, you know, what, what are they thinking? Right. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. So I'm, I'm blending in with the surroundings. And just to give you an idea of how well I blend in, in with the surroundings, last summer I was fishing a stream. I came to this huge deep hole that was about probably 30 yards long and chest deep. And I, I was on the, the shallow side in water about knee deep, and I was standing against a silky dogwood bush, which hid me. But I was in the water. The silky dogwood bush was on the bank, and then me, and then the, the, the pool. I made a cast out into the pool right beside me because I was catching a few trout, and I, wa- I was really over-covering the water because one of my key tactic, tactics is I usually only make one cast to each spot, and I keep moving. But on this particular day, the water was a hair, just a touch off color, not much, but a little bit. And I was also catching trout like crazy, so I was making more casts than normal. Anyway, I hooked a trout that was 10 and a half inches long. And when I hooked it, this humongous trout came up behind it and started circling it and nipping at it. And that I, I brought that trout. I was, I was tra- hoping the big trout was going to grab the little trout. The big trout was probably 25 inches long. It was huge. It came over so close to me, and it actually brushed against my my right hip boot. It never even saw me. It brushed against my hip boot, and then went back over and sat over in the pool right where it had come from. And I I then cast in again. I caught another trout. It chased that one just a little bit, but not much. And then after that, it wouldn't look at anything. No more spinners. But the point is, is that that trout never even saw me. And why is that? It's because I was wearing camouflage, you know. Uh, I will admit my real, I was turning my real handle. It was a cloudy day, but there was some motion that maybe he could have seen that he didn't. But I'm sure that the camouflage helped a lot in that case. So I'm fishing a stream. Let's say it's a mountain stream that's 20 feet wide. I'm going to probably cover a half mile per hour. That's how fast I fish. I'm constantly moving. One cast generally to each spot. Now, one hole may have five spots. Right. Oh, yeah. But, but I'm I'm moving quickly up the up the stream. There is no point in standing at one spot. The exception to that would be if I was fishing for stock trout on opening day of trout season. Right. You know, you might as well just make a bunch of casts because that's stock trout. That's completely different. Right. Most of my fishing is for wild trout. Right. Now, so, no. So, I know you move fast, and I'm familiar with the with the same. But if I do come to a spot um, where I am catching them and I catch one, I am, I mean, I almost always cast in again. Yes. This. Yeah, I would okay. too. I would I too. See. Yeah, I, I would too. But it's a, it's a, I'm overemphasizing the point. I think what I'm trying to do is make a distinction between someone who stands at one pole for 15, 20 minutes casting a spinner and someone who keeps moving. Right. You're going to catch a lot more trout if you're, Moving. I'll give you an example. I learned this when I was a little kid. 
Remember, um, I guess we talked about it earlier about when I was growing up and we'd make little dams in the stream mm-hmm. and then stock trout would filter into those dams on the stream. By the way, I don't recommend it making dams now. I've learned that was a kid thing, right. you know, 50 years ago. Right. But we would then feed those trout bread ahead of the season. But one of the things I learned is, is this. To start the opening day, when the bell rings on opening day, do I want to be at a pool that has 20 trout in it, and I'm the only one there? Or do I want to be at the bigger pool that has 50 trout that's probably going to be have 10 people at it? Well, the, what would I rather do? Where am I going to catch the most trout? Right. It's the pool with 20 trout. Mm-hmm. So if I'm fishing spinners, if I'm fishing a Class A mountain stream, I may, in the course of a morning, fish past, um, I could fish past 1,000 trout. But if I only fish a short stretch and, and stay at each pool for 15, 20 minutes, I may have only fished over 100 trout, which gives me the biggest opportunity to catch the most trout. It's by moving. Move, move, move. And that's why I do it. Because trout almost always hit a spinner on the first pass, so you want to keep moving. Yeah, I can I can definitely attest to, you know, I call it run and gun the way that I fish if I'm using a spinner. Um, even I would say it doesn't even matter if it's a spinner. It's I'm on the move. You know, just it just improves your chances greatly. Plus, you know, I know you are the same as because I've seen a lot of the pictures you like to take and stuff. I want to take it all in. You know, I can't help but wonder what's around the next bend, right? Mm-hmm. It's like a constant excitement. Like, I just got to I just gotta keep going. I want to see, I want to see, I want to see. Now, what, uh, don't get me wrong. I will mark, like, great spots. Like, I have uh, Onyx Maps, uh, which is like a map app. And I'll mark, you know, oh, this, this was the spot. This was the spot. And I know, and I remember them spots because some of the trout that I catch there are large. You know, and I'll go back and I'm going to try to catch either yeah. that same trout or another big one. Because, you know, some of them... Holes will hold multiple large trout. Absolutely. Um, but, yeah, I, I fully attest to everything you're saying as far as that goes. Uh, you said, you know, the casting, you're only going to make one cast, but you're probably going to try your best to make that cast go exactly where you want to be, right? Absolutely. Casting accuracy is critical. Uh, it's what separates the men from the boys. Mm-hmm. And once again, I'm not saying that to be conceited or something. Right, right. But uh, you know, I've taken enough of beginners fishing that I know uh, what difference it makes. Okay, um, If you're fishing a little mountain stream that's 20, 30 feet wide, you need to be able to hit an area. And I want to make sure I don't exaggerate here because I'm not claiming to be like perfect with my casting. <laughs> right. I, I'm looking I, at his rod. There's I, not a scope on it. Trust me. And <laughs> yeah. I, I'm. I'm not. I let's let's say you want to. I I think that at 40 or 50 feet, you need to be able to hit a spot that's let's say a yard square, mm. something like that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to claim to be able to hit something that's the size of a frisbee at 40 or 50 feet every cast. Um, I you know I don't, but I can I get into a rhythm, and one of the, by the way one of the keys to accurate casting, in fact what I consider the key, is you need to look and stare at the exact spot that you want to hit. That's the critical thing. I've already had days where I'm not casting real well, and I think to myself, you know, what, what am I, rusty? I haven't fished since the day before, so I guess I'm getting rusty. I don't know. But um, I'm thinking, my casting isn't very good today. 
and and then I'll make a cast and it'll go up over a little bush and I'll think, well, okay, I can see why that happened. It's because whenever I made the cast, I was looking over at the bush. No wonder it went over the bush. All right. You know, you have to look at the spot that you want to hit. And on those days where my casting is not very good, I just tell myself, cast, look at the spot you want to hit, and it changes immediately. I start casting a lot better. I guess I was just getting lazy. Right. But you want to look at the spot that you want to hit. That's absolutely critical. And the analogy I like to use there is with, um, like, a baseball pitcher. And I never played baseball or anything, so I, I don't know much about it. But I think that the pitcher aims at the catcher's mitt. I'm pretty sure that's what they aim at. And uh, they're watching that mitt through their entire motion. They're not paying attention to the motion that they make. The motion that they make is coming automatic. They've learned that motion. That muscle memory. Yeah, the muscle memory. That's a good way to say it. I couldn't think of that. That's Mm -hmm. exactly what it is. And they're throwing to that catcher's mitt. And that's the same principle with spin casting. You're not trying to pay attention. You're not looking down at your real handle or your rod or or how you're releasing the line you're you're looking at the spot that you want to hit that's the the key thing and by the way the cast that i make we haven't talked about that but the cast that i make is what i call an underhand straight ahead flip cast it's extremely accurate because of one major thing keep in mind it's a straight ahead underhand flip cast compare that to a sidearm cast or a overhand cast. If I'm making a straight ahead, underhand flip cast, my cast, I only have to worry about one thing, one dimension. How far is it gonna go? Right. Because I'm casting straight in front of me, and as long as I haven't screwed up the mechanics, it's gonna go low and straight and hit very close to where I want it to hit. But if I'm using a sidearm cast, I would call that two-dimensional, because you have to get good at where it's, how far it's going to go, and also how far left or right it's going to go. You don't generally have to worry about how high it's going to go, right. which would be the third dimension. Now, if you're casting overhand over your head, three-dimensional, how high is it going to go up into the tree limbs, mm-hmm. how far left or right is it going to go, and how far is it going to go? So if you use an underhand straight-ahead flip cast, it's easy. it takes a while to learn it, but once you've learned it, it's, in my opinion, a much, much better cast because, generally speaking, once you get the mechanics down, the only thing you have to worry about is how far it goes. That's right. it. Yeah. So it's a lot easier. And the actual casting motion, by the way, I cast with with uh, my rod in my right hand. I already mentioned that the, the, the um, cork handle is in the palm of my hand. But I hold the line in my left hand in my, with my trigger finger in the knuckle of my trigger finger. And that's and I keep the line tight between my trigger finger and this pole. And it's also then automatically tight out to the rod and the line that goes down from the rod tip. Generally speaking, I have about three or four feet of line hanging down to my spinner from the rod tip to the spinner. Um, the exact amount I don't think is critical, but the distinction I want to make is you don't want six or seven feet hanging down because that makes the cast very difficult. 
and you definitely do not want only six inches or a foot of line hanging down from the rod tip to your spinner. That makes casting extremely difficult. Right, right. So roughly somewhere in the neighborhood of three or four feet of line from the rod tip hanging down to the spinner. And then the underhand flip cast, what you do basically do is you, you, when I was learning, I used to just rock the spinner back and forth on it like a pendulum. Mm-hmm. Some people even call it a pendulum cast. Right. But you rock the spinner back one, two, th- maybe three times. And on the third time, just as the spinner is swinging out and away from you, as soon as it needs more line to continue its flight, that's when you let go with your trigger finger. And then it, and if you do it right, there's a lot of tension on everything. And when you can actually feel the line ripping off your spinner, or off of your finger, and then it, it flies like a dart in low, low trajectory and goes where you want it to hit. The, it, the, it's critical that you have all that tension when you let go of the line. That's the, one of the keys to the underhand flip cast is having all that tension build up. Definitely. So it, makes, it makes a big difference. I've never met anyone yet who... Uh, uses the trigger finger of their casting hand. In other words, they're casting completely just with one hand, and their other hand they're doing nothing. They just use they just pre- they pinch the line against the cork handle, and make a cast with that. I've never seen anybody that does that. That they get the power into the cast that a person using the underhand flip cast that I used gets. It's just it's just different. So, um, and also if you use the underhand flip cast. You can get under obstructions better than you can with a sidearm cast. And obviously with an overhand cast, you can't get under obstructions at all. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, like you said, I, I have definitely casted with spinners the way you're talking. Um, sometimes I do just use one hand. It all depends on the crick size. There, there's, a, there's a lot that goes into it. But, yeah, I agree with that. But I fully, fully definitely understand what you're saying. Um, but... You uh you do always fish upstream, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you cast about how far out in front of you normally? It depends on the stream size and how many poles there are and everything. But let's just say your typical mountain stream that I fish is probably has a stream bed that's 20 to 30 feet wide, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I would say in, in, on a stream like that, I'm probably casting most of the time in the... 40, 35 to 45 feet range, something like that. And if I'm fishing a large stream, like the Little Junietta River, and I'll mention that stream because it's no secret. Right. And it's it varies in size, but let's say I'm fishing a stretch where it is maybe 80 to 100 feet wide. Most of my cast, I'll usually be on one side. I like I prefer the left side, all things being equal, but if, because I can set the hook better mm-hmm. if I'm setting the hook away from with my rod away from my body rather than across my right. body. Mm-hmm. But, but Yeah, I'm I'm right handed in the same. I always want to if I'm fish aside and work with what I'm gonna cast to my left and yeah. pull away towards the field side of the stream. Yeah. 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 And so but if I'm let's say I'm on an eighty foot wide stream and I'm on the left side in the water usually mm-hmm. crawl, going along the bank on the left side I will make cast, my casting, most of my casts will be about, I would say, 60 to 80 feet. And most of them will be out at 1 o'clock. As I go up, as I, I make a lot of casts out to 1 o'clock. And obviously, I make some straight ahead of me at, at 12 o'clock 
and maybe in be- in between a little bit. But most of my casting as I walk up along is over at one o'clock, and then as I reel in, the spinner moves downstream with the current and kind of swings, and I move my rod the entire time to keep the line tight. And when I'm done with that cast, where that I started out by casting at one o'clock, usually at the end of the cast, my rod tip is pointing directly downstream. That's how I keep the line tight throughout the cast. And I just keep moving upstream and keep making the same cast, basically. Now, obviously, I'm making a few that are straight upstream or, or up toward the middle of the stream as well. But, but, to, but most, I'm covering most of the water by, 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 by casting to 1 o'clock. If that, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, if, I, if I had a diagram here in front of me, I could explain it better. But, uh, but the viewers wouldn't see the diagram anyway. Yeah, so. it, it makes sense. Um, I think that that's the best way you could say it, too. You know, you were, you were casting... To your left, you know. So if you're facing 12 o'clock, you're casting to your left. If, if I'm if I'm moving upstream on a stream that's 80 feet wide, I'm I'd be casting. But the left would be the bank. Okay. The the I'm actually casting to, to one, your right to one o'clock, which is would be I would consider that to my right. Yeah. Even oh, yeah. even though you could argue that at one at noon a cast at noon angle, you could say that's either that's really sort of almost left, you know, in a way. Right. Know. But, or straight ahead, you could say that's close to being left, whatever. Right, but, but it's going from 1 to, give or take, 5, 6 o'clock. Yes, yes. As it, it's The original cast is usually going to 1 o'clock, and then as I retrieve it, I'm covering the water that is 3, 4, 5 o'clock, mm-hmm. including the middle of the stream. Right. You know, as I move up. Yeah. Yeah, definitely the method you're talking about. The only thing I want to say about like the method that you are talking about, because you were talking about, did you call it a horizontal line drift before? Horizontal, horizontal line drag. Okay. So I want to bring this up because I, I, I have used this method that you're speaking of, but I've used it to my advantage, right, to where I'm not reeling as much, okay, because what's happening is the current has a hold of the line, right? And if I am to reel, it speeds up. The process of the bait, i.e., the spinner moving through the water. Yes, I my personal opinion there would be keep reeling and not rely on the current to move the spinner. If because I, I think you'd have a harder time feeling the hit from the trout if you were not reeling. And I will agree totally because we're talking about there's more line out there, right? It's yeah. not as tight. It's not as tight, right. exactly. Right. Yeah. It, I think the distinction there is somewhat minimal. Mm-hmm. I don't think you're talking night and day difference, but I'm talking a minimal difference. Mm-hmm. I, I would definitely keep reeling. And we're talking in this case on a stream that's like 80 feet wide and probably a couple feet deep. Yeah, probably. Uh, riffle. I'm not talking about the little mountain stream here that is that is um, yeah. you know, sha- much shallower. Or definitely. That, that's a defi- definitely different scenario because the speed's not there, the depth's not there. Right, that's the mountain stream. That is a whole different animal. Yeah. Um, more than likely, you can manipulate your movement, whether it's, you know, unless you're using a dry fly. I mean, you, you know, it's, it's which would be a lot harder to manipulate your movement. But, yeah, I I agree totally. I just wanted to bring that up. Um, let's move on, if you don't mind, to uh, what goes on uh, about if you're if you're in a spot in a trout hits the spinner you know what what goes on if you don't if say let's say a trout makes a pass at it right are you going to go for a second cast in there or yeah okay yeah i'm going to okay um yeah if if they if they 
go after it and don't hit it, or if they do hit it, I'll, I almost always will make another cast. It rarely works out, but I usually make another cast just because, you know, why not? It's one of those things. That's kind of like the exception to my one cast thing. Remember when I talked about the making one cast each spot, that's an overemphasis. To, I'm trying to make that as a comparison to someone who, who stands in one hole and fishes for 20 minutes. I'm, you know, there's, I'm, I'm not anywhere in the, near in the middle there. I'm still rapid casting and moving. But, um, but anyway, so yeah, you keep, you keep doing that. And, and by the way, a lot of times when a person has a trout that just follows a spinner, a lot of times that trout has already hit the spinner and the, and the angler didn't even know it. Mm. You know, that's, that's the reality. And one thing I'm, I should say here too, I just thought of it, is that um, a question you might have and the listeners might wonder as well is if they might say to me, what percentage of the trout that you know have hit your spinner do you hook, play, and catch? And this might come as a surprise because I've already told you some of my credentials, and, but I'm going to be very honest and open here because I've kept track of this many times. It's very simple to keep track of. Uh, when I'm fishing, sometimes what I do is I pay attention for 10 trout in a row, and if I have a hit and I don't catch it, I, I say to myself, one, zero. Okay? I cast in again, maybe I hook one and catch it. Okay, my count is now one, one. I move upstream and I have another hit, don't catch it. Okay, I'm at two, one. And, and I do that until the two numbers total up to 10. So I might end up with a total, a number at the end that's six, four. That would mean six hits, mm-hmm. or 10, to- 10 total activities, so right. to speak. Six hits, four catches, 40%. That's what that means. And I've done that enough that I can tell you that of the trout that I know for fact hit my spinner, I catch about 40% of them. That's all. That's why I say setting the hook is spin fishing's greatest challenge. And I do everything I can do, and I've studied this over the years, changed things, done things. What can I do to hook a higher percentage of the trout? Now, I will tell you, I have times where I'm probably hooking and catching 80% of the trout. It goes in a big swing, up and down, all day long. Every day that I fish, it varies up and down widely. If you have someone tell you that they uh, hook 100% of the trout that hook their spinner, and I've had people tell me that, here's what I say to them. They're not noticing a heck of a lot of hits. Mm. They're, they're only noticing a minimal, minimal number of trout that hit their spinner and, and for some reason hung on to their spinner, and they caught them. They're missing a huge percentage of the trout that hit their spinner. That's why you wear polarized sunglasses so that you can it minimizes the glare and you can watch the action. That's one of the things that makes spin fishing so exciting. Definitely, is you I can agree see with that. you can see the action. So uh, that's I didn't mention that before, but polarized sunglasses. That's why you wear them mm-hmm. in addition to protecting your eyes. Definitely, it's so that you can see the action and watch the trout hit your spinner. Yeah, it's just more fun. Yeah, absolutely. Not only that, um, talk about the safety portion of walking through the water. You can see holes, i.e. logs, whatever, maybe a little bit better than you can. Um, that's, that's a good point. One we, thing I do want to bring up, Frank, too, because um, I know we talked about the camouflage. And I just want to shoot back to that just for one second. The sun. Let's talk about your shadow. Yeah, yeah. Um, you don't want your shadow going out over the water. Right. That's for sure. 
Uh, when I select streams, one of the things that I select is what what direction am I going to be fishing into the sun? Mm -hmm. Is it going to be to my left, my right, behind me? I pay attention to that in my stream selection. I have streams that I will not fish in the middle of the afternoon right. because I know that and it depends on the time of year because the sun's a little different. But in, for most of the year, the sun's going to be directly in my eyes. Right. Uh, in fact, I have several streams that are like that. I won't fish them unless it's a cloudy day. It's a waste of time. You're just fishing into total glare. Yeah. You know, and that's not sh worrying about your shadow. That's worrying about glare. I would, I would say my shadow, I would say that's a minimal thing to worry about. I worry more about glare I see. From, from the sun. And that's a big problem fishing in the middle of February. Mm -hmm. It's hard to get away from the glare. Uh, um, you know, I fished a day here last week, which was in early February, and um, the fishing was slow. And... Um, I caught, I think it was 21 trout in the morning. I think it was four and a quarter hours, which for winter trout fishing, I considered that decent. You know, I, I was okay with that. But then the afternoon came. And by the way, the forecast was for cloudy skies the entire day, or I wouldn't even have gone. And the, it got clear about 8 o'clock in the morning. So uh, somehow I caught 21 trout by roughly 11.30 noon, whatever it was. And then in the afternoon, I could not, no matter where I went, get away from the glare. It, it seemed like it didn't even make any difference what angle the sun was. It was a total glare. And I fished the rest of the day, three or four different stops, and I caught nine more trout. That's it. Wow. It was like, oh, boy, this is bad. This is not what I signed up for. So I can have days that are pretty darn slow, and glare is a big problem, particularly in the winter. As far as my shadow on the water... Uh, realistically, I'm casting far enough ahead of myself that that's a, not usually a problem. Now, I will say you, you don't want your shadow hitting the tail of a pool before you've fished it because if you scare those trout, they're going to shoot up in and scare the other trout. Yeah. So you do have to be kind of careful of that. But with spin fishing, I would consider my personal shadow to be uh, a minimal problem. Um, I want to head down the road here just um as we're going to start wrapping this up you i'm just going to read some of these numbers here okay and if you want to add anything in uh with me going over this please please feel free to uh so frank has a chart here for the 2022 trout season and uh these are all monthly statistics so he has uh for the month of january now this is 22 this is last year the month of January, it looks like you didn't fish. Okay, you say you don't fish much in the wintertime. Makes much sense. February, number of trout caught, 43. Number of hours fished. Okay, he has this listed also, six hours. Uh, average number of trout caught per hour, 7.17. 7, 7 uh, number of uh, days fished, one day. So that's 43 fish in one day. Okay, it's mm -hmm. impressive. And it's February. I fish in the wintertime. It's, it's harder. I don't... It is. The trout are just not as active. They're not. Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe someone, you know, you're listening to me and you're like, oh, that's just totally wrong. Well, please show me. Because <laughs> you must be, you must have a, a, a decent spot where the trout are a little bit more active. But like you said, the weather, there's some other things that go into that. Um, I just want to just, just bury through these numbers here real quick. March, 538 trout caught. April, 790 trout caught. Uh, I mean, that's, that's 790 trout is more than 
normal fishermen may be catching five to eight years. I mean, you know, uh, May 2,488, June 2,593, July 862, August uh, 321, September 1,073, October 985, November 315, uh, December last year zero. Um, yeah, and one one thing you'll you'll see from those numbers is a lot of it you can see goes right with the water levels. Mm -hmm. You notice how many I caught in August? Yep. Well, why is that? I didn't fish very much because I was doing other stuff. Water was low almost everywhere. That you know, heat. So, yeah. Yeah. Yep. So um, and the heat. And why did September all of a sudden get good? Mm -hmm. Because it did rain a little bit in early September, which helped some. Mm -hmm. But the main reason September started to pick up was the heat declined, mm -hmm. it dissipated, and I started going to some streams that I hadn't fished be for months because the water had been too warm, and at least all too warm for, too, for an all-day fish. And um, so I started going to some different streams in September, some larger streams, and I mainly was fishing f for bigger trout too as well. And that's something I would like to bring up here too. So I'm um, using your chart here and going to your calculations. So <clears throat> now don't get me wrong. These are the these months that I'm going to name here are the months that it looks like where you did fish the most. So it does make sense. Um, so the months you fished the most that had a uh, trout caught of 16 inches or longer are going to be June, July, and September. Okay, now you also have October on here. And October is the least days of number fished with a high percentage of a larger trout from what I'm looking at. Yes. So that... I mean, to me, that says something if you're fishing for a larger trout. Yeah, anyone who, who wants to catch a larger trout, um, you, you want to do that in, in uh, September, October, and November. Your odds of catching big trout go up dramatically during those months. I catch over 50% of my trout in my life that are 16 inches or longer in September, October, and November. And I've added that up and checked it out. That's one of the things I cover in my spin fishing seminar that I do. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, to me, that's, I mean, I'm one of them guys I've caught so much trout in my life. I still get excited to catch small trout. Don't care, especially on a new stream. But when, when you know, when it comes down to the nitty gritty, I, I want to catch a larger trout. Just more challenging. You know, the way they hit, they're harder to hook. There's, there's plenty of stuff that goes into it. Yeah. Um, but I just want to go over a couple more of your accolades here because... This is this is just wonderful, Frank. I, I really really enjoy reading this. So, um, the best hour of trout catch seventy seven in one hour. <laughs> yeah, and you know I'm going to be very open about what that was. Um, what it was was uh, the fish commission stocked a whole bunch of rainbow trout fingerlings in a stream. Mm -hmm. I believe it was when they cleaned out the Benner Spring hatchery. Okay. Or, or, no, wait, no, no, wait, not Benner Spring. A uh, big spring hatchery. I was gonna uh, say. So I, I misspoke there. Sorry about that. Because there was a time where the big spring hatchery closed down, mm -hmm. and I think they cleaned out the trout. But it doesn't matter where it came from. But I I, I went to a stream and I got there, and there, there were just swarms of little rainbow trout that were uh, right around six to eight inches. Mm -hmm. And I just said to myself, okay, I'm gonna, just as a challenge, I'm going to see how many trout I can catch in an hour. So I spent one hour. And I, I did everything as fast as I could. And it wasn't fun, by the way. 
to do this. I just did it just to see what I could do. It was just a challenge. So for one hour, I fished as fast as I could fish. And by the way, I caught a, a hog brown trout during that hour. That was, I don't remember, 17, 18 inches. It was probably eating them. It was out feeding on the, <laughs> on the fairness. Yeah. Unfortunately, it slowed me down. Maybe that would have been 80. Right. But, but I caught 77 trout in that hour. It's not a natural situation, and it's certainly not what I'm trying for when I'm going out to go fishing. It was just something to do. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, it's nothing to be proud of. Yeah. It was just something uh, that happened. I mean, it's still an accolade once... You know, it, it whether you look at it like like you talk about it or not, but um, this one here, I like this uh, total number of wild tiger trout caught twenty four. That's really impressive. I, yeah. I mean, that's not something you come. I've caught two wild tiger trout mm -hmm. that I know for sure they were wild. Um, but you got your largest brook trout is nineteen inches. That's a freaking monster. That yeah. is probably bigger than I've ever seen. Yeah, and that of course was a stocked trout. Right, but still, I. I don't. I can't say that. Other than on videos and pictures, I've never seen one that big. I, biggest I've probably ever seen was seventeen, maybe sixteen and a half. Yeah. Just well, it all depends on how big of one the fish commission stocks. Yeah. <laughs> they, right. So that's why I don't consider that that nineteen inch brook trout to be any big deal. Just so everyone knows that. Right. It's it just hey, it got stocked. I caught it. Yeah. That well, sort of thing. I mean, we'll get down. I get down to this one that I'm looking at here at the bottom. But uh, largest brown trout, twenty six inches. That's that's a great. That's a great trout. I mean, that's that just the nature of a brown trout. I know how heavy that trout probably is right away. Yeah. Um, was do you know if that was a male? I'm trying to even remember which one that was. What 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 year was that? Um, it looks here uh, seven two oh three. Oh three. So oh three, well, you caught that brook trout too. So that's a hell of a year. Yeah, yeah. Here offhand, I didn't study this ahead of time. That big brown trout, I I can't remember exactly which one that was offhand. Uh, which shows you, it must not. It was a stock trout. It mm -hmm. probably didn't make a, that big of an impression on me. Right. Uh, I know one of the biggest brown trout that I ever caught was close to that size, and it was just a stocked one. And I caught it two different times, about a month apart, in the same hole, and I didn't consider that really any big deal either. Uh, here offhand, I'm trying to even think where that big brown trout was, and I'm I'm drawing a blank, unfortunately. And it's, that's fine. It, it doesn't that's matter fine. anyway. We can always catch up with you later yeah, about it. The 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 only one. Big trout there that I'm most proud of is the the native brook trout. Yeah, I was gonna say I'm getting down to that. <laughs> yeah. So he has here a uh, largest native brook trout, 16 inches. Yeah. That is a monster. <laughs> yeah, that, and that was caught in 2021. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And um, I, now I know as soon as somebody hears that, the first thing they're gonna say is, uh, I'm sure it was a stocky, and you just don't know what you're looking at." That's what I would think if someone else told me that. So that's a normal person saying that well guess what after i caught it i said to myself i was kept fishing and i'm i'm thinking you know i think i caught another big trout in this stream i wonder if it was that one so i, I got when i went home i called up one photograph from three years prior of a 14 and a half inch native brook trout that i caught same trout I met how many years was it prior almost it was all it was uh, about Two or three months less than three years. Wow. The other one was caught in, I think, October. Mm -hmm. And this one was caught whenever, whatever you said there. Uh, was it August? I'm not even sure. Yeah. Was it August? Mm -hmm. Okay. And it was in the same stream about two miles apart. So, I, actually, wait, I take that back. I'm, I'm, I misspoke there. It was the, when I caught it three years prior, roughly three years prior, it was in a feeder stream to the stream where I caught it this time. 
but it was still roughly two miles apart. Wow. And it was the same trout. And it was, there was no question in my, in my mind that it was a native brook trout. And I've caught some other big native brook trout in that same stream. I had one that was 15 and a half inches there about 20 years ago. Uh, and I've caught a number of them that were uh, 13 inches. Uh, the year the, that I caught the 14 and a half incher, I think it was the day before that I caught one that was 14 inches, same stream, just a different section of the same stream. Because one thing I didn't mention earlier is that I don't fish the same stretch of a stream two days in a row. Mm-hmm. That anybody, You don't do that when you're fishing spinners. I try to give a stream a two-week rest between visits because trout get accustomed to spinners, and they're not going to hit them again that quick. So you you rotate a whole bunch of streams, and you just keep your fingers crossed that no one else went there and fished spinners and caught a lot because it's going to ruin my day if I do that. If I get there and somebody else who was really good fished spinners there a day or two before or even a week before, the number I catch is going to be a lot lower than it would otherwise be. Yeah. Big, big difference. For sure. So... Uh, and by the way, I probably should explain what I mean by that. Um, one question people often have is, do trout think a spinner is a minnow or something else? And my theory is, I've never interviewed a trout, so I can't, I don't know this for a fact, but I think that a spinner represents food, a food item that a trout has never seen before, at least on their first encounter. I think they, they strike it the first time because they think it's food, and then maybe even the second time. And then I think they think, well, wait a minute. This is something unnatural. I never see this during my normal feeding. And I've hit it, been caught twice, had that hook in my mouth twice. And I think they quickly realize that the spinner does not represent anything they normally see. If they, if they thought it was a minnow, theoretically, couldn't you catch it every other day on a minnow? Because trout are going to keep feeding on minnows. They feed on minnows all the time. So it's very easy for a trout to eliminate a spinner from their diet because they never see them during normal time. They only see them when an anger comes by. So they, they just eliminate spinners. And uh, I, I personally believe that trout can remember even from one year to the next. And I have some experience with that on, on one particular wild brown trout on a little tiny mountain stream that only has one big hole. So I'm pretty sure it was the same trout for a whole bunch of years in a row. Uh, and I caught it one year. I never caught it again. It would chase my spinner. By the time I was, the last year that I was there, it wouldn't even turn to chase my spinner. It was close to 20 inches long. <laughs> but it knew what a spinner was. So, so that's why I believe that a spinner represents food, but not something that uh, they normally feed on, so they then avoid it very quickly. That's why you rotate streams. One last thing I want to touch on, too, is, you know, I know that you fish a lot of wild trout, fish a lot of, you know, certain type streams, native wild. Um, you don't keep your fish. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm a catch and release guy completely. And for anyone out there, I have a little advice about that. If you're someone who keeps a lot of your trout or most of them or all of them, um, you're going to have a lot longer learning curve because you're not handling anywhere near as many trout. Right. If you want to get good at something, do catch and release because you'll have a lot more fishing experience time because you're handling and fishing over more trout over a longer amount of time. That and I just want to reiterate, 
I would prefer, and if you asked me that you get, that you would keep the stock trout. Um, most of them are not going to hold over. I mean, some of them can. They will. Uh, but most of them are not going to hold over. So, number one, they're probably going to die. I'm not saying all of them, once again, because that's not a true statement. But I'm saying most of them. Uh, the majority. The wild trout, you got to think about how long they've wild and native that they've been in that water to grow to the size of some of these fish that you're catching too. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think of how old some of them fish could probably be. You, that brook trout you caught at 16 inches, we're talking, that fish could be up to 12 years old. Yeah, I, I'm thinking, I don't know, of course, because I, w- I would, if I had to guess, I would say it was probably at least nine years old. Right, yep. Because it, for one thing, it only grew, uh, what, an inch and a half from 14 and a half inches to 16 inches in, mm-hmm. in almost three years. Right. How old was it to get to grow to be 14 and a half inches? And I'm also very familiar with that stream that I caught those trout in, or the, it was actually the same trout. I'm very familiar. And when you're fishing, you can get a general idea what age class of the trout that you're catching. I mean, depending on the time of year. And I mean, if you're fishing in, in the autumn and you're catching some little three-inch brook trout, chances are those are ones that are... Um, they're hatched out in, in probably March. You know, they're a half or so a year old or something. They might not even be three inches yet by then. But if you're catching four and five inches, you, I can look at my, my tablet, and, and you can see more trout in certain sizes. And I think part of that is because of age groups. Now, I realize as they grow and time passes that they, the age classes get cloudy, because you have fast growers and slow growers, and I know that. But you can get a reasonably good idea, though, of how old. And, I mean, on that particular stream, if I'm catching an 8-inch brook trout, it's probably um, four-plus years old. I mean, it's, it's really yeah. impressive. Yeah. So. So. But I want, to, uh, I want to wrap this up, Frank. Um, you've been a great guest. I, I, like I said, I'm thoroughly impressed with your knowledge and uh, – I really like how you're focused on one thing. You know, you're you're, you're a spin fisherman, and that's that is really cool. It's hard to find a lot of guys. And my I'm myself, I like to be a little bit of a jack of all trades, right? And I don't. I'm not so much into mastering stuff. I'm not. I, I just will be flat out honest with you because I have like an ADHD mindset. Like I'm like, oh, what's that? Oh, what's that? Oh, what's that? You know. Now there's certain things that I do. You know, practice religiously, but I I want you to uh, reiterate where people can find you, where they can get a hold of you if they have any questions for you, if if maybe possibly you want to uh, steer them down the road of how to make their own spinners, how to make their own rods, any questions that they may have for you, um, um, where can they reach you at? What I would recommend there is going to Facebook because, you know, I have my own page of which I, I try to keep most of it to fishing. Mm-hmm. And if they go there, now obviously a lot of people are not on Facebook, but anybody that's on Facebook, if they message me with questions, I'll try to help. And if they go back through my history, they will already see, for example, that tips sheet that we've been looking at here yeah. during this interview. Yeah. Um, uh, we, that's already on there. My recipe for making spinners is also on there. And I think my, I don't know if my rod building recipe is on there or not. It's a, it's a, my rod building is for people who don't want to spend a lot of money on equipment. I got you. It's the cheap man's way of doing it because I, I never spent any money on stuff. The only, I bought, I think, two, think two things. I bought a little, 
little file so that I could auger out the cork handle. Mm -hmm. And I also bought a razor, a little razor knife. Everything else is, is um, other than the parts for the, for the rod, um, everything else I just used stuff I already had. So, but most of my stuff, if, if, if they contact me on Facebook, I'm also available at uh, my email address. I don't give out my phone number for obvious reasons, but my email address is very simple. It's franktroutangler at aol.com. And if people email me, I will do my best to try to help them out with, with questions. So that's, those are a couple ways. Another way is uh, on the website huntingpa.com, and that is in the trout slash salmon fishing forum, where I, I'm, my name on there is Frank Trout Angler, and you can see my fishing tr summaries on there, and it goes back for several years, and a lot of the questions are, are answered on there, and anything that I write, if I write a little fishing story, you can be pretty sure there's probably going to be some tips thrown in, in with it. Uh, one tip that I have threw in a lot of times, and I get a lot of criticism nowadays, I didn't realize what I was doing, was a lot of people think that I dislike fly fishing, fly fishermen and fly fishing, and that's absolutely false. I have absolutely nothing against fly fishing or fly fishermen. In fact, I have friends who fly fish. And, but I figured out where they're getting that about me. And where they got it is, is that years ago when I was doing my little fishing stories, I often wrote about how I had to quit because I ran into another angler. Because I, I would not fish behind somebody. It's a total waste of time if you're spin fishing mm -hmm. because the trout are already going to be alerted. You have to fish over an undisturbed population of trout mm -hmm. if you want to catch trout with spinners. So in all my stories in the past, I'm, I'm forever mentioning running into fly anglers, and now I had to quit. Well, people interpreted that as me hating fly fishermen, which is really bizarre in my eyes, but I can I can see where people get that, but it's absolutely false. I have nothing whatsoever against fly fly fishing or fly anglers, nothing. And um, the reason I mentioned that I ran into fly fishermen in my little stories is because it was a fly fisherman that I ran into. It wasn't a bait angler. If it would have been a bait angler, I would have said I ran into a bait angler. Or if it was a spin fisherman, I would have said I ran into a spin fisherman. So um, I just wanted to make that little clarification there. But on the Hunting PA website, a lot of my stuff is there. It's a lot easier to read some of my, like my annual summary, it's a lot easier to read it on Hunting PA than it is on Facebook because it's all in one big, long string. It's not in two or three different posts. Right. Yeah. So it becomes easier to do. So, but those are the ways that people can, can get a hold of me. Uh, I also do uh, trout fishing seminars. It's called Spin Fishing for Trout. And I, I did three of those last year. And that's one was for the John Kennedy chapter of Trout Unlimited mm -hmm. in Altoona. I did one in Gettysburg. And I did one in Northeastern PA. All three of those were for Trout Unlimited chapters. And um, I like doing those. I have to have... You know, these things are planned months ahead, and I prefer that there be advertising done. And um, I do I do them basically for very little mm -hmm. as far as money. Right. For John Kennedy, TU, which is local, I don't charge them, never have. Uh, the other ones where I had to travel, I had to charge a little bit. Otherwise, it's costing me money to go there. Right. But I certainly don't make any money doing it. I, I can honestly say that of all the seminars I've ever done, I've never paid for my 
my equipment. You know, I, bought, I had to buy a laptop computer, a projector, um, and, all, and years ago I had to buy, you know, a projector. I had to buy a device that you can use two projectors at one time to right. interchange slides and, and um, you know, different things. So it's, I don't consider it a money-making thing. But if there's any sportsman's group out there that is interested in having me, it has to be planned ahead of time by a couple months. But I, I would be interested in talking with them, and they can just email me and ask me about it if they're, if they're interested. So it's always very well received, and even people who don't trout fish have liked my, my program because I have pictures of wildflowers and deer and mm -hmm. all kinds of stuff in, in my programs. Good. So Good. Well, Frank, thank you so much for coming up. I really appreciate it. Uh, like we were talking about before, maybe what we'll do is let's let's get through the trout season, the uh, say the prime of it, right? Um, maybe going into later in the year, um, we can touch base with you, see how the season went, and and check out the numbers and stuff again. So thank you so much for coming on, and uh, we hope to see you again. And thank you very much for having me, Marcus. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Hopefully it helps some people. Yeah, I think it will. Thank you. That wraps it up for another episode of the Keystone Chronicles podcast. I know that one was a little bit longer, so maybe you split it up into a couple portions there. Frank was very knowledgeable, and I'm very grateful to have him as a guest. If you guys have any questions, feel free to reach out to him or me via any of the social media platforms. With that being said, I really hope you guys can find time to subscribe comment, and rate the podcast on any platform that you're listening to on. And if you are bored and you want to help me out, shoot me a message, uh, DM, whatever way you can get a hold of me there, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, and uh, let me know what platform you guys like listening to this podcast on. It really helps me out to uh, put my coins where, where I can help uh, the show out here a little bit more. So Thank you guys for listening. I really appreciate it. And until next time.